0: that our hope would be unwavering. I pray that as we look to the Word of God today, that this unwavering hope would be strengthened and supported as we come to the Word this morning. We praise You for the songs we've been privileged to sing. We praise You for the truth that is revealed in them. And ask now that by Your Spirit, You will sanctify Your people And draw to saving faith those who know not Christ as Savior. Bless us and strengthen us to this end, we pray. Meet with us here, and may our faith be unwavering. Not because our faith is strong, but because our God is great. We bow before You. We acknowledge Your love and Your faithfulness. And I pray that You deepen us and strengthen the roots of that faith today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Chapters 9-11 through of Paul's letter to the Romans is not for the faint of heart. Uh, This is a challenging section of Scripture. And as I've said before, one of the reasons is that we don't lay awake at night thinking about these things. There are things that you lay awake at night thinking about, aren't there? There's troubles that bounce off the walls of your brain and they don't let you fall asleep sometimes. Or a problem awakens you well before it's time to get up and it sits on your head like an anvil and it just won't move. It's those kinds of troubles, relational troubles financial troubles, disease, and death, and guilt, and hard decisions, and discouraging developments. When the Bible addresses these matters, we sit up and listen. We need to. We know it. But when the Bible addresses matters we rarely consider, it's a lot harder to pay attention. It's harder to find the purpose in it and to really think through it. Adults, uh, do you remember when a parent talked to you about a matter you thought was a waste of time? Remember that? Then years later, you go, oh, that's what mom was saying. That's what dad meant. I, I needed that information. I needed that discussion. That's what they were trying to teach me. You may even wish you could go back to that time and consider the lesson more carefully now. Well, in a manner of speaking, Romans chapters 9-11 through 11 is a talk from our Heavenly Father about lessons we need to learn. It's for our spiritual strengthening. It's for our well-being and growth. So let's dig into this text today remembering that it is often the more abstract and challenging concepts of Scripture that have the most practical influence in those moments we're not prepared for. But when we enter into them and they keep us up at night, it's so often what has been fed of our understanding of God and who He is and how He works that, is the, that is, provides the root bed of faith and trust. Romans 11 as we return To this section today, Paul continues to grieve with hope over Israel's stunning rejection of her Messiah. And it is stunning, and we can only picture a few places in Scripture, but looking at the seminal idea that the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You are My people, and through You I will bless all nations. Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He's talking to the offspring of Abraham, to the Israelites. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Notice that phrase, that idea. He has chosen you To be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. He loves you because He loves you. He chose to love this nation. because He loves you that He is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Isaiah, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. This nation this people, this offspring. God has gone on record. I have chosen you. You're mine. Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth. I mean, how much do you worry about that? That the sun will come up tomorrow. It's going to go down tonight. Not speaking scientifically, but knowing it's going to be there. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. I will do this, says the God who loves Israel. Then we come... To Romans 9. And we read at the end of verse 32 that they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who don't believe in him, Israel has, been, has rejected her Messiah. She has stumbled over Messiah. Israel's not rejected Jesus because the Gospel was never preached to her. It's not because it was misunderstood. It's not because it was too difficult to attain. That's his emphasis here then in chapter 10 of Romans. Remember this, verse 6. Do not say in your heart, "'Who will ascend into heaven?' We have to go up and find Jesus in heaven. No, He's already come to earth. He's taken on flesh. God and His saving purposes have brought Jesus here already. You don't have to go into heaven to find Him. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Christ has already risen from the dead. Verse 8, but what does it say? What does the Old Testament Scripture say? The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And as He applies it, Again, parenthetically, that this is to bring Christ... I'm sorry. uh, But what does it say? The Word is near you. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. So here it is, Israel. It's not hard. Not keeping it from you. Here it is. Verse 9, If you simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not just a prayer. That's not just magical words. But as we say, Christ is Lord, I trust in His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is laboring here to say it's not because this is difficult. It's not because Israel's not heard it. It is rather because she's refused it. That very nation that God called, chose, and loved. Verse 18, I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. But I ask, verse 19, did Israel not understand? No, they've understood very, very well. That's why they are jealous. Isaiah is so bold to say, verse 20 of chapter 10, I've been found by those who did not seek Me. I've shown Myself to those who did not ask for Me, the Gentiles, but of Israel. So what's verse 20? That's the Gentiles responding to Israel's Messiah. But verse 21 of Israel, He says, All day long I have held out My hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The logical conclusion at this place is that it must be that God has abandoned Israel. God has rejected the nation that He elected as His own, and the evidence is having sent Messiah to win her and to save her, she has rejected Him. What other conclusion would you draw logically? So we may not lose sleep over this concern, But the answer to it is profoundly important to our understanding of salvation history and to our understanding of the character of God. And so such considerations serve as the massive foundation stones on which we stand in our faith. They are the stabilizers in our souls when the troubles wake us up early and keep us up late. So taking that in, Paul says, first of all, that God has not rejected Israel as his people. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? This is the logical conclusion on the basis of what we see. He must have rejected his people. How could they not respond to Messiah? How could they stumble over Jesus? I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. Now, who are His people? There's some debate on this. And I I think it's important that we understand it whether we know the significance of it or not. But notice verse 20. Who's he talking about there? Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek Me. I have shown Myself to those who did not ask for Me. In light of Romans chapter 7, that has to be the Gentiles. as Jews are pictured as those who do seek God. I bear them witness, Paul has said, that they have a zeal for God. It's just not according to knowledge. Verse 20 must be the Gentiles. and verse 21 then, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. He's not talking here about the church. He's talking about Israelites who have rejected the Messiah. So when he then continues, verse 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected His people It's not a useless question. Has God rejected His church? I mean, who's asking that question? No one. But has God rejected His people? That's Israel. That's the people of Abraham, those who have rejected their Messiah. Has He rejected them? Paul says, by no means. And he offers now two lines of support. First of all, the testimonial support of Paul himself is part of the remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, the second part of the verse, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So he's saying what? If, If God intended to reject Israel, He would certainly reject the man who tried to crush the infant church. I'd be like Exhibit A for God to crush and reject because of my resistance to the church of Jesus Christ, my persecution of the followers of Jesus. I am living, breathing proof that God has not ended His salvation plan with Israelites. He saved me of all people. He's not rejected His people whom He foreknew. You notice there in verse 2, And that word foreknew is the crucial word in the sentence. Is Israel walking in disobedience to God? Yes. Has Israel rejected Messiah? Yes. But the basis of God's relationship with Israel is not her performance. The basis is His foreknowledge. Now remember as we considered this theme back in Romans 8... Particularly verse 29, God's foreknowledge is more than His ability to see what will come to pass. God's foreknowledge effects what it knows. By knowing it, He brings it into being, is the idea. So back in chapter 8, in verse 29, we read there that very theme, particularly with respect to individuals, but for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those that he predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. Those that he justified, he also glorified. This is the glorious work of God. This is what he has chosen to do. And when he foreknows someone, he effects their faith and their trust in him. What is true of individuals is true also then of Israel. That's Paul's point in verse 2. God's not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Since He foreknew them, it's impossible that He could reject them. He would never do that. He turns then, secondly, to a historical support. Where he brings out here in verses 2-6 through that a remnant of Israelites chosen by God's grace characterized the old covenant era. This really is not anything new. Do you not know, verse 2, what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Paul points back here to 1 Kings chapter 19. It was a dark, dark time in Israel's history. The king was Ahab. The queen was Jezebel. And there was a reign of terror against God's people in Israel. The nation was morally bankrupt at this time. And Elijah informs God that Israel is one man short of spiritual extinction. That would be me, he says. It's just me, Lord. I'm the only one, the only faithful prophet that's left, and I'm going to be dead soon. What does God say? Verse 4, what is his reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have kept. Don't let that phrase slip by. I, the sovereign God, have been actively keeping a people whom I foreknew for salvation, faithful prophets in Israel. You don't know about them, but Elijah, you're not the last man standing. I've been at work this whole time. There is a remnant that I preserved. 7,000 are yet loyal to me. What was true of God's salvation plan under the Old Covenant is equally true under the New Covenant, Paul now argues, verse 5, so too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. In the Old Testament, God preserved a remnant, a small group of genuine Israelite believers. We could picture it something like this. There's more coming to the graphic. It's not all leaning to the left here for no reason. But there's a remnant within Israel. This is what he's talking about. There was a remnant in Israel at the time of Elijah. This is how God works. I have kept them. And this is how God continues to work even with Israel. With characteristic brush strokes, the divine artist can be seen in the present time. Notice that verse 5. It's in this present time. Now, in this new era of salvation in Christ, there is also a remnant chosen by grace. Has God rejected Israel? No, there was and there is now a remnant chosen by grace. There is yet that remnant chosen within Israel that remnant now related to Christ is part of the church which is predominantly gentile at least tracking and heading that way even in Paul's day this i think depicts this graphic what he's saying this is what he's this is this is where he's tracking verse 6 But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's simply qualifying what he says in verse 5. There is a remnant in Israel who has embraced Messiah. That is consistent with the way God has always worked. He keeps a remnant for himself from the people of Israel. And verse 6, let's remember then that it's by grace, not by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is just the gracious doing of God. Israelites do not earn their way into the remnant by obeying God's law. They don't earn their way into the remnant by simply being Israelites. Remember chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's the problem. They want to be righteous. They know that they are God's people. But they're striving to please God by their obedience. That's troublesome perhaps to you. But grab that idea. We don't please God by our obedience unto salvation. He wants us to obey Him. He calls us to do what He says, of course. But that's not how we're saved. It's not by being a good person and doing good deeds. And Israel had come to embrace that idea falsely. This goes back to what Paul's been arguing through the whole book. Chapter 3 and verse 28, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The works of the law come. We do what God wants us to do in response to a salvation that He alone can effect in us. Not by our righteous works, but by His faithful grace to us in Christ. So the remnant is formed only one way. Verse 5, what is it? They are chosen by grace. That's the only way the remnant is formed. That's the only way anyone has come to Christ ever, really. It's by God's enlightening their eyes to see His saving grace and we respond in faith and trust in what He has done for us. We don't rest in what we have done for Him. God needs no bolstering. He needs no supply from us. He is self-sufficient. But in His grace... He gives salvation to His people. That's the way it's been. It's the way it was. You can see the theme in the Old Testament. That's the way that it is, Paul argues. A remnant formed, being chosen by grace. This was true then. This is true today. So, has God rejected Israel as His chosen people? No, He has not. But secondly, God has hardened most Israelites to the gospel. That's his theme beginning at verse 7. God has hardened most Israelites to the gospel. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? She was seeking to be right before God, a righteous standing before him. Israel was indeed seeking Messiah. They just didn't like the one God provided. But that's what they were seeking. What Israel was seeking, she did not obtain. Now, a qualifier here, verse 7, the elect obtained it. Those chosen by God, those given grace by God, to see the light and respond to my Messiah, they did attain it, but the rest were hardened. And what will follow now is a demonstration that most were hardened. But the rest were hardened. So the elect obtained it. A remnant in Israel has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. Thinking again back to this graphic. But the rest were hardened. After Christ's coming, the majority in the green here remain unmoved by Messiah. And they were then, as Paul puts it here, hardened. That takes us back to chapter 9. And we know the troubling thought there that God would harden a heart. It's only troubling because we don't know who God is. All God must do to harden a heart, He doesn't do it by bullying people. He doesn't say, you know, I don't like you, I'm going to harden your heart against the gospel. All God needs to do to harden a heart is nothing. Nothing. He lets the hard heart remain. He doesn't open the eyes and soften it. He's a sovereign God. The vast majority of Israelites have rejected God's saving grace in Jesus the Messiah. That's the point. All God does to harden a heart is to leave it alone. To leave it to pursue its fruitless quest to obtain righteousness by law keeping. And that might be you individually here for just a moment as we head off to the side and think about how it applies to us that could be you you may have a hardened heart to the grace and the forgiveness of God and your heart is hard and demonstrated to be hard by the fact that you're trying to do good you go what that's what I thought I was supposed to do aren't good people supposed to do good things well, of course, on one level, but if you're doing good in order to impress God, in order to gain your salvation from Him, that's the evidence of a hard heart. I've preached sermons in this place that stress as well as I know how to form it, I don't, I don't know how to say it any more clearly. And it's, it's hard to think about it because words can't always express what you'd like to convey. But I've done everything I know to explain that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And people will meet me at the door and say in so many words, I'm going to try harder this week. That's a hard heart. That's a heart that's hardened to the grace Of Christ you may be there right now you're trying to be so good you're trying to be better than other people you're trying to find your salvation in yourself God in his mercy as we come back to Israel has called out a remnant that has seen it's not me keeping the law it's christ keeping the law and his righteousness given to me as he dies in my place to pay the penalty of my sin i pray and and if if you're here saying well my heart's hardened to that i don't care or i can't do anything about it yes you can you can come back to what the Apostle Paul is pleading that you would understand, verse 13. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The hardness of heart is really not rooted in misunderstanding. The hardness of heart is really rooted in a rejection of Christ's saving grace. Trust Him. Embrace Him by faith that in what He has done to save you. But God has, verse 7, hardened some. In fact, most, verse 8 brings out, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. What a horror that is. But he draws from a covenant renewal gathering in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses is leading with the people of Israel and also draws from Isaiah's oracle appending judgment against Israel. And Paul stresses that Israel is once again in the place of spiritual stupor. This is consistent with her pattern. So don't look at their rejection of Messiah in the Gospel and say God is done with them. But do look at that and say there is spiritual stupor. They are drunk on their self-righteousness. Israel cannot see that Jesus of Nazareth is her only hope. Paul next draws from Psalm 69 where King David prays against his enemies. As God defended King David, God likewise opposes those who have rejected Messiah, spurning the Gospel but in an amazing display of cosmic wisdom, God designed Israel's rejection of Messiah to have an upside. And Paul will develop that theme in verses 11 to 32. But first of all, to round off the matter, uh, we, look off, we look to what he says there. I should read what David says. Verse 9, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This fulfilled now in Israel's rejection of Messiah. What David prayed, what Isaiah prayed, has now been fulfilled in some sense in the hard hearts of Israelites who reject Messiah. But to round off the matter, I'd like to dip into that next section briefly as we pick up a third consideration. Really, this is where the section ends. And you see that indicated with verse 11, so I ask another question, indicating a new section of thought. But let's just stumble into it for a... a I shouldn't use the word stumble in this passage, should I? Let's <laughs> let's walk a little ways into it uh, as we consider uh, this, this next idea. And that is this, that God has opened the door for the nations through Israel's rejection of her Messiah. Here is God at work. Here is the master artist. You can't miss this. Has he rejected his people? No. He has hardened the majority of Israelites, but in this in doing this, God has opened a door for the nations through Israel's rejection of her Messiah. This is the stunning wonder of his grace. We see the open door of salvation here in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. What does he mean by stumble? Stumble over what? Stumble over the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sin. That Jesus is God's Messiah, Israel tripped over that stone. It was meant as a step. It was meant to save. It's tripped her up. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? What does that mean? He's using this figuratively. By fall means God's done with them. There's no more opportunity for salvation. To be lost forever as a nation, never again to factor into God's saving plan. Is that what's happened to Israel? By no means, he says. Rather, verse 11, Notice the middle of the verse. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. There's two major, vital ideas here. The first, Israel's rejection of the Gospel opened a door of opportunity for the salvation of the Gentiles. And here's where we can begin to put this together and say, I get this. This really is amazing. You think of... The Gentiles in the Old Covenant, under the, in the Old Testament era, how likely were they to come to salvation? I mean, who were those Gentiles? We know them as Egypt. What was Egypt's relationship to God's people? Wow. We know them as the Assyrians. How did they respond to God's people? What did they do? The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. How did these people relate to Israel? The only thing any of them really wanted was Israel's land and for Israel to be gone. That's it. What was the opportunity that Gentiles had under the old economy coming to Israel? It was to become a Jew, essentially. There were God-fearers who retained some of their culture, but there was a joining of this nation of Israel. all we see in the Old Testament are Gentiles trying to crush Israel. That's it. I ask this secondly. What we know of biblical history, what we know the nations did to Israel, I ask this second question. Can you imagine how the Greeks and Romans would have responded if all of Israel had embraced Messiah immediately? It wouldn't have just been Jesus on the cross. It would have been a whole bunch of Israelites. That would have resulted undoubtedly in military opposition. That's all it would be. The only Gentile response would not have been faith in Jesus, but would have been fear that Israel was uniting around a Messiah king. So we could picture it like Gentiles are a a woman in a building that is on fire. And she doesn't know what to do. She's trying to get out of this building, but she doesn't know where to go. And there's a doorway, an exit, to get out very freely, but she doesn't see it because there's this big, large man standing in the way, and he's blocking her vision of the doorway. That big, large man is like Israel. She has direct access to, or he has direct access to the door. She can't see it because he's too big. But as he moves toward that door, he falls down and in a moment of time, her eye catches the opening and she turns and jumps over the man and runs to safety, dragging his arm, trying to get him out. It's kind of a gruesome picture, I realize, but I couldn't come up with something better. But that's a bit where we are. By Israel stumbling, by Israel tripping, we got a vision of Messiah and we've embraced Him. We've gone through that door to salvation. It wasn't going to happen any other way. Israel trips over Jesus and the Gentiles have embraced a Jewish rabbi as Lord and Savior. Stunning. And I never get tired of this. But this gathering right here today is a display of that wonder. We've walked through that door. We're here and we really should not be here. But here we are. As Gentiles gathered to worship Israel's Messiah. I trust that you're here having trusted Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not about Jew and Gentile. It's about Messiah who saves. So that's my first point, and the second will be shorter here under this theme, but Israel's rejection of the gospel opened a door of opportunity for the salvation of the Gentiles. You noted there, and it's a little weird to us, but it says, secondly, and very importantly, so as to make Israel jealous. So as to make is God at work in all of this, and He's at work in all of this, Israel stumbles that Gentiles can go through the door of Messiah to salvation and God's in this to make Israel jealous. What does that mean? We might picture it as a father who loves his son very deeply. His son matures and as he does, he really has little time for dad. Doesn't love him. Doesn't want to spend time with him. Dad invites him to come to things, to interact with him, and the son just says, I, don't, I just don't have time for that. Not interested him. He's doing his own thing, developing his own life. And as time passes, the father adopts another son. As that son matures, their relationship thrives. The adopted son and father are spending time together and going places together and developing a relationship that's very warm and mutually beneficial. And the first son looks at that situation and that relationship and says, that's my dad. Why did he spend so much time with the adopted son? He doesn't spend time with me like that. We don't have that kind of relationship. That's my dad. Just... Picturing a little bit the kind of jealousy that can come through disobedience. Israel's jealousy, Israel is filled with jealousy that countless numbers of Gentiles across the planet are embracing a Jew as Messiah. The offspring of Judah the offspring of David, of Abraham, this Jesus of Nazareth, countless numbers of Gentiles are embracing him as their Lord and Savior. And Israel has become jealous. We don't see this with every individual, but I think on a large scale we do. After the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Israel became largely a defensive faith. They have spent the centuries saying, this is who we are not. We're not followers of that Jesus guy. We're not followers of that claim to be Messiah, that one claiming to be Messiah. That's not us. The fact that Israel is jealous, however, Paul is saying here somewhat subtly, but what God is saying is the fact that Israel is jealous is actually a good thing. Going back to the illustration, the son that's the original son, the jealousy indicates that there might be a return to relating to the Father in a better way. That is precisely what will happen, Paul says. This jealousy is actually the indication of a live conscience. The indication that there may be a future day of reconciliation. And the rest of chapter 11 lays out that that's in fact what will happen. There will be a restoration of relationship with the Lord. As wonderful as this is for us now here as Gentiles, we just marvel that we've been allowed in through that open door. But there is that future prospect. Verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, what does that mean? They stumble over Christ... That opens the way for Gentiles to come to Christ. That's the riches that Gentiles have, is Jesus and His saving grace. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, just repeating the idea, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Or literally their fullness mean? Paul will unveil this point in fuller detail below, but Israel's rejection of Christ should not be interpreted to mean that she has suffered irrevocable spiritual ruin. Don't think of it in those terms. The stunning development of Israel's rejection of the Gospel clears the way for the Gentiles. It highlights then as well the wonders that will come when the vast when vast numbers of Israelites respond to Christ in the future. If God can work such grace among Gentiles by means of Israel's sin, Paul is saying, imagine what he will accomplish through Israel's obedience in the future. And here's where we can't quite grasp how these roots strengthen our faith. But there is a grand and glorious picture that's going on here. We may not lose sleep over the inclusion of the Gentiles among God's people. We've had a couple thousand years to grow accustomed to the idea. But I imagine if, that, if we were able to grasp the wonder of it all, we would lose sleep. We'd be so excited. We'd be so thankful and so thrilled with what God has done Like that woman stumbling out into the fresh air and taking in a full measure, filling her lungs with the freedom of that air and knowing she's been rescued. If we understood that, what excitement there would be in her heart. But just two thoughts, briefly. Naturally, logically speaking, The way God's plan of redemption played out for centuries, one would logically conclude that we have no business finding salvation in Israel's Messiah. Being in that yellow box as a Gentile, we just don't have any business being there in some sense. We are, in fact, as Gentiles as a group, like Saul of Tarsus as an individual. Our history was simply to kill the offspring of Abraham, to mock Israel's God, to worship the false gods. And if we went back in time to Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome and Egypt, undoubtedly we'd be part of that culture ourselves. The fact that we would respond to the Messiah sent to save Israel from her sins, Luke 2, is nearly incredible. Remember what Jesus told that Gentile woman when she wanted healing? I've been sent to Israel. What did she say? Yes, but the dogs eat the crumbs under the table. Where did that come from? She's coming out of the people who seek to crush Israel, who despise Israel. And here's this woman who has met Messiah Israel's Messiah. And she says, could I be considered like a dog under the table licking up crumbs? Where does that come from? She saw the beauty of Christ as a Gentile. She saw the way of salvation. Our response to Christ as Savior is a work of God and it is nothing less. We must respond to that good news that Christ took on flesh. That He lived a sinless life. That He died as the Lamb of God bearing the weight and the sin of His people. That He rose from the dead. That He gives forgiveness of sins. This message is the door out of the burning building and is our life and our hope. And like that woman... We've come to lick up the crumbs almost. We've come to see in Christ the beauty that we will take anything. And what He gives us is not the crumbs, but what He gives us is His glorious riches in Christ. Troubles in life, they really become something wholly other when they are suffered knowing that our sins have been forgiven and our eternal future is secured. He won't give us crumbs he gives us hope and saving grace to all who come and call upon Him. second point, and that is that naturally and logically speaking, we would think that God would have no time for Israel now. Centuries of a rebellion in the Old Testament. Messiah coming, demonstrating who He is through miracles, and Israel saying nothing but crucify Him, crucify Him. But what we learn here about God is the truth of His relentless love, of His faithfulness to His promises. What we learn about here is that no promise of God will ever falter. God's love for His people will never dry up and die. That is true as we think about Israel, and that is true as we think about every one of us who is a child of God through faith in Christ. God keeps his promises. God never breaks his covenant with his people. And so when we read things such as Romans chapter 9, and we read that those that he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those that He justified, He also glorified. When we hear that salvation plan, we hear that covenant in Christ, nothing will destroy it. We can put our hope and our confidence in the promise of God, nothing will will destroy that promise. And His relationship to Israel is an evidence of that. God keeps His Word. He keeps His promises. He does not break His covenants. His eternal plan of salvation has encompassed Gentiles. It has drawn us into the family of God. That is amazing grace. And it is why we sing. Why we can sing in the dark, why we can sing when we're together, and why we can confuse, impress, and draw the attention of the angelic world as we celebrate as Gentiles this saving grace. Lord, we thank You. We know not what else to do. If we don't understand it all, we could never, ever want Israel to stumble But Lord, you have thereby brought us into the light and we just thank you We pray that you draw to saving faith those who are separated from Jesus and deepen our roots in the wonder of your salvation plan for those of us who know you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he is, all that he has done, all that he will do. And we put our absolute hope and confidence in your promises to us in Christ. Through him we pray.